Before her death and the deaths of her entire family, Lydia Lethrop Beetle had nightmares. She dreamed of paper spattered with blood. She dreamed of a man with blood pouring out of his body. She dreamed of her daughters lying side by side, dead, perhaps, in a faraway dark corner of her mind. She knew what her husband was planning, that the axe that would end her life and the lives of her children was close, so close that it entered her subconscious mind and tried to warn her that her nightmares would become reality. The Murder-Suicide of the Beetle Family, December 11th, 1782 in Wethersfield, Connecticut. Extract from a letter in Harvard, Connecticut, dated December 13th, 1782. Last Wednesday morning was committed one of the most shocking murders ever heard of. William Beadle of Wethersfield, the morning above mentioned, cut the throats of his wife and his four children, then took a pair of pistols and shot his own brains out. It was a premeditated thing, he wrote letters the night before to Colonel Chester, Dr. Farnsworth, and left a number of papers giving his reasons for the above horrid fact. I suppose they will be printed, if they are. Shall forward you the account the very first opportunity. In 1782, the Beadle family consisted of William Beadle, his wife, Lydia Lathrop Beadle, and their children, Ansel, age 11, Elizabeth, age 9 or 10, Lydia, age seven or eight, and Mary, age six. William and Lydia, and their two oldest children, Ansel and Elizabeth, moved from England to the U.S. and settled in Wethersfield, Connecticut in 1773. There, William became a successful merchant and was considered among the elite. William and Lydia had two more children, Lydia in 1774 and Mary in 1776. At first, William Beadle appears to have been a good citizen, after the Boston Tea Party, the British Parliament closed the port of Boston to all ships, which prevented supplies from getting to Massachusetts. William, being wealthy and a nice guy, donated money to help relieve Boston. During the Revolutionary War, the law required merchants to continue to accept continental currency at face value, even though its value depreciated significantly. Most merchants disregarded the law and increased the price of their goods. Not William Beadle. The other merchants remained among the elite while William Beadle fell among the middling sort, or middle class. In March of 1780, Congress devalued continental currency to one-fortieth of its face value. Instead of being among the elite, he now struggled to make ends meet. It likely meant he lost a lot of friends and knew it was not likely that his daughters would grow up to marry well. His life as he knew it, and the future of himself and his family as far as he was concerned, was over. And this is when, some say, he began carrying an axe and a carving knife with him to bed every night. Shortly before his death and the death of his family, he wrote to his old friend, Colonel John Chester. The following letter was courtesy of the Wethersfield Historical Society. The Christian religion is a most benevolent system and would produce grand effects if it was really and universally practiced. If it is really true, I shall be saved by it. And now I must generously own, I have as many doubts about the truth of that as I have about any other scheme of religion. 
as to the miraculous parts of it, they appear to me as full of absurdity and inconsistency, and as unnatural as any of the whims and frenzies of any idolaters or of those we pronounce impostors. That there is some wonderful power, or powers, that make me in all, I have no doubt. But whether there is one being only, or one million of beings, no man can judge. The ancients held a plurality of gods, and we purified Christians, although we profess to own but one god, take care to split him into three parts, and take greater care that one of those parts must be a man first, turned from God into an infant, from infant into man, and from man into God again. They dare not go to that divinity they worship, but seem to dread death, the cure of all evils, more than any hell that ever fancy formed. If our God is really good, he can and will take care of us after death as well as here. And if he chooses to frown, I know by experience that there is no want of health in this state of things. I mean to close the eyes of six persons through perfect humanity and the most endearing fondness and friendship. For never did mortal father feel more of these tender ties than myself. I really believe that the true God supports me. For while I am writing these very words and meditating this intended deed, no singular anguish of mine affects me. And why should it? For my intentions are of the purest kind. Three of the best men, of the most just, honest, and benevolent dispositions that Jesus was formerly acquainted with, all destroyed themselves. They stole away from and left me behind. If they are happy, I believe I shall be so. And if they are miserable, I believe I shall so have the same fate. For we thought and acted greatly alike. And it seems as if my end would be greatly like theirs. But after all, I must confess that if I was in your situation or in that of many others, I should incline to swim through life as I could. But a desperate disease requires a desperate cure. I am in such a situation that I cannot procure food, raiment, nor fuel for myself and family. Is it not time to die? But it shall be said, if I am determined to kill myself, I need not destroy others. I thank them for their compassion for my family, and I know how quickly the world would crush them, as it has me, too. But as it is a father's duty to provide well for his flock, I choose to consign them over to better hands. Nor am I afraid of my original sin, nor any actual transgression that they are yet capable of will impede their future happiness. If anyone in this case is culpable or punishable, it must be myself, and I must submit to the highest power. If after my sincere prayers and desires both to know and to do the will of the great creator, if after my continued efforts to promote the happiness of my fellow men, even to the emancipation of every slave on earth, if my charity has extended even to the brutes and to the insects, neither of which I could even bear to see tormented nor torment myself unless by an instant death, if after all my strenuous exertions for that system of government, I thought the best for mankind. In general, I have stripped myself naked. If after a voluntary sacrifice of myself and whole family, I dare approach to deity itself, to learn his future will. I say if after this conscious of my own heart thoughts and actions, I am yet to inhabit terrible hells and burnings forever and ever, 
Hard indeed will be my lot. It must really have been an evil spirit and not a good god that gave me any existence at all. But as I have renounced all the popular religions of the world and mean to die a proper deist, I really think there was never anything done wrong in the world. But like my friend Pope believe that all is right, that we are all impelled to say and act all that we do say and act, that a tyrant king or two or three fierce Republicans deluging three quarters of the world in blood, that my killing my family, that a man's destroying a nest of wasp or a fly escaping from another man that means to kill it, is as much directed by the hand of heaven as the making this whole world was. And if this is the case, there is no such thing as sin. And the consequence is this, that the pride and vanity of this important creature called man is greatly humbled because the great creator has not thought proper to let him know for what purpose he conducts matters as he does on earth. But as I have freely acknowledged myself a confirmed deist, I equally reprobate the word atheist. It is nothing but an invented epithet of reproach used by a lot of bigots against those who most follow, whose superior sense cannot descend to their contracted views. I never saw, read, or heard of anyone. I heard or read at first. And dabbler in divining who, instead of reaching the noble strange of deism, cannot so much as unravel one of the mysteries of that religion he professes. That there is some superior power, I firmly believe, and in this belief is all my consolation. That there is a future state, and perhaps a thousand different future states for man, and it may be for brutes. I equally believe the wisdom and discernment of many noble fools have thought and wrote in almost every age and nation I have incorporated into my very frame and almost adore them. They have learned me that God is my father and not my enemy, that the more ready and willing I am to go to him, the better he will treat me, that there is no devil, that to dread death is to own myself both a coward and a fool. To their opinions I add my own, that if a man who has once lived well, meant well, and done well, falls by unavoidable accidents into poverty, and then submits to be laughed at, and despised, and trampled on by a set of mere wretches as far below him as the moon is below the sun, I say, if such a man submit, he must become meaner than meanness itself and I sincerely wish that he might have ten years added to his natural life to punish him for his folly. How I shall really perform the task I have undertaken, I know not till the morn arrives. But I believe I shall do it as deliberately and steadily as I would go to supper or to bed. It has been three years in contemplation, for I was determined not to hasten the matter, but kept hoping that still providence would turn up something to prevent it. If the intent was wrong. But instead of that every circumstance, from the greatest to the smallest trifle during the whole of that term and long before, only tended to convince me that the utmost malevolence of fortune was, and is, against me on earth. I have borne the stings and arrows of outrageous fortune long enough, and by opposing I can only end them. And as I was willing, twenty years passed to make the trial I must. It has now become absolutely necessary. I had some doubts whether it was my duty to destroy my wife, as I had no hand in bringing her into the world. But when I consider her excellent heart 
that wishes to cause happiness to everything that breathes. When I consider her incapacity of gaining a livelihood or proper partner after what will be called a shocking disaster, and when I am certain that her extreme fondness for her children was such that it must cause distraction or a state of mind that would be worse, I concluded that it would be unmerciful in me to leave her behind. And as we have enjoyed and suffered poverty together, we had better take our leaves of life together also. For if she should remain, her distress of mind must be anguish itself. If they should happen to be right, they may someday give new ideas to a new speculative genius like myself that may prove beneficial to him, though it appears like the worst of poison to others. In the above observations, when I consider men as Christians, I look on them as free agents. I have examined both Old and New Testaments and must think that is their true meaning and intent. But when I consider man as a deist, or one that does not believe what is called revelation, I think him a perfect machine, and that he can do nothing but as he is operated upon by some superior power. The wisdom of philosophers, the trophies of conquerors, and the squabbles of divines appear in reality more ridiculous than the droll faces and tricks of baboons and monkeys. This being the case, I choose to leave this world as I found it, honestly confessing that I know not what to make of it, nor never did, nor never with any man that thinks know what to make of it while he stays in it. Let's unpack that, shall we? So while he was writing this letter, he was perfectly calm, and he thought that meant that some higher power was giving him the green light to murder his whole family. So let's talk about deism. Per the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it is the belief in God based on reason rather than revelation or the teaching of any specific religion. The word originated in England in the early 17th century as a rejection of Orthodox Christianity. The Weathersfield Historical Society noted that he likely practiced deism in private and claimed to be a Christian in public so that he could fit in with the society in Weathersfield, Connecticut in the 1700s. Per the Weathersfield Historical Society, the deists believed that natural forces govern the universe and that God was sole creator of natural forces. From these ideas, some of them evolved what Basil Wiley calls cosmic Toryism, the Panglossian belief that all is for the best. But he took it a bit too far, well, um, extremely far, and thought it meant that he was essentially free of sin and that what he was going to do was always going to happen. On November 7th, 1782, Lydia Lathrop Beadle left for an extended visit to Fairfield. William planned to kill himself and his children while she was away. He set the date for November 18th. Beadle started writing his will and began composing his letter to Colonel Chester. But Lydia returned ten days sooner than expected. He wrote, Unless the fates change faster than the wind, she is to go with us. On November 17th, 
the day before William planned to end the life of his wife and their children, Lydia told him of a dream she had, quote, her dream that she thought I had wrote many papers and was earnestly concerned about her, that these papers were spotted with blood, that she also saw a man would himself pass recovery and blood guffle, as she expressed it, from different parts of his body. In response to this dream, William wrote, I am unappalled and think the hand of heaven is really with us. On November 18th, Beadle wrote, I have prepared a noble supper of oysters that my flock and I may eat and drink together, thank God, and die. Per the Weathersfield Historical Society, he sent the maid with a studied errand to a friend's house at some distance, directing her to stay until she obtained an answer to an insignificant letter he wrote his friend, intending she would not return that evening. But she, like his wife, returned earlier than expected, and he wrote that he had no right to kill or even frighten her, so he did not kill his family that night. Instead, he brought an axe and a carving knife to bed with him. He planned to kill his wife and children the next morning while they were still asleep, but for some reason he did not. Perhaps one of them woke up before him. Whatever the reason, he continued to carry the axe and carving knife to bed with him every night, just in case. While William went to sleep every night, thinking about murdering his family the next morning, Lydia continued to have dreams. On November 28th, Thanksgiving, William wrote, She dreamed that her three daughters all lay dead and that they froze in that situation. She also dreamed that she was suddenly seized and liable to great punishment, that it created great confusion, but she afterwards got free and was happy. In response to that, he wrote, From her excellence of heart, I have no doubt that this will be the case with her. He also wrote, Even yet I am little affected. O oh my God, wonderful indeed are thy works. Men may rely on it, that tis he, alone, that now directs me and supports me. On December 6th, William wrote, I rose before the sun, felt calm, and left my wife between sleep and wake, went into the room where my infants lay, and found them all sound asleep. He stood over the bodies of his sleeping children, holding the axe, or as he put it, the means of death. He thought to himself that he was showing quite a bit of self-control. He decided not to end their lives that day. On December 10th, William wrote to Colonel Chester, Thank heaven, for I believe the day is now come. This is a glorious one, and Providence seems to smile on the deed. That day, William was seen grinding a large carving knife. In the evening, he entertained guests, and he insisted that they stay the night, but they declined. The next morning, William Beadle woke up before the rest of the house. 
he went into the maid's room and stood over her sleeping form. He woke her up and told her that Lydia had been sick all night and asked her to go get the family physician, Dr. Joseph Farnsworth. He wasted no time when the maid left. He went back into his bedroom where a sleeping wife lay. He grabbed the axe and struck her over the head twice while she was still asleep. He then dragged her body to the edge of the bed so her head was hanging over the bed and cut her throat. He then placed a handkerchief over his wife's face and left her body dangling over the bed. He then went into the room where his sleeping children lay and struck all of them over the head with the axe. He then lay their bodies side by side on the floor and slit all of their throats. Since this is an especially old case, it is unknown the order in which they were killed. And it is unknown if they woke up or not. But my hope is not. William Beadle then went downstairs, put the knife on the table, sat in a Windsor chair, put his elbows on the arms of the chair. He held two pistols, each pointed at his temples. He fired the pistols at the same time, ending the Beetle family. Their headstone reads, Here lie interred Mrs. Lydia Beetle, age 32 years, Ansel Lothrop, Elizabeth, Lydia and Mary Beetle, her children, the eldest age 11 and the youngest 6 years, who, on the morning of the 11th of December, 1782, fell by the hands of William Beadle, an infatuated man, who closed the horrid sacrifice of his wife and children with his own destruction. Pale, round their grassy tomb bedewed with tears, flit the thin forms of sorrows and of fears. Soft sighs, responsive swell to plaintive chords, and indignations half unsheath their swords. Lydia Lathrop Beadle, age 32. Ansel, age 11. Elizabeth, age 9 or 10. Lydia, age 7 or 8. And Mary, age 6. And that, my friends, was the tragic murder-suicide of the Beadle family. Um, just some thoughts here. So, if he was so concerned about money, why was he still entertaining guests? Why did he still have a maid? Why? Why? Just why? Um, it's obviously very tragic and... His wife and children clearly did not want to die. 
it's all very, very tragic. Um, another thought, so the whole dreams thing, very interesting. You know, I think women especially, and no, um, no hate towards the men or anything, but I think women especially have a great amount of intuition and especially mothers. And it's very interesting that she was having those dreams. So is it women's intuition? Is it paranormal? Who knows? But obviously, this is very tragic. I hope you enjoy this episode today. I will be posting some photos on the Instagram at the Axe Murder Diaries. I'll also be posting a video at some point. If you have any questions or thoughts, you can leave them at the end of this episode, or you can comment on the Instagram. Thanks for listening. Bye.